Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by a guest from the industry to discuss the week in news and the most pressing industry issues. I'm David Thorpe, reporter at FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. Joining me today are James Thompson, who runs the Rathbone Global Opportunities Fund, and Richard Saldana, who runs the Aviva Investors Global Equity Income Fund. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. As global equity investors, James and Richard can invest anywhere in the world. Well, James focuses more on growth in, in his fund mandate, Richard has an income mandate and looks for income paying shares, which also have some growth potential. James, let's start with you. Um, markets have rallied stoutly as various central banks, including the Federal Reserve and the ECB, have hinted that interest rates either won't rise or will be cut. This implies the market believes rate cuts can prevent a downturn. Investors being naive about the capacity for monetary policy to save the world once again. Well, the first thing to say is that I'm not an economist. And remember that a group of economists looking at the same set of data often come up with wildly different conclusions. And that's what's happening now, perhaps more so than I've ever seen in my career. But most investors are suffering from end of cycleitis the unswerving belief that we must be near the end after 10 years of expansion. Trouble is lurking. They remember the misplaced complacency that, that they felt leading into the last horrible recession, and they won't make that mistake again. Well, that's why this rally has been so unloved. Everyone thinks it's fake and is sitting on the sidelines waiting for a pullback. You know, I think maybe we should change our thinking. Uh, instead of backing our short-term instincts, we should just create a long-term plan, money that you can really invest for the long-term in businesses that you know are sustainable and can survive all weathers. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Richard, what's your, what's your view? Yeah, so I, I don't know about monetary policy saving the world. I mean, I, th- I think it's fair to say a lot of the central banks around the world have done a lot of the heavy lifting post the financial crisis, right, in terms, in terms of interest rates. Um, it's quite interesting right now. Obviously, the market's been very quick to price in further Fed cuts this year, cut potentially from the ECB as well. So you'd expect that stimulus to continue. It's a very different point in terms of where we are in the US and obviously where we are in Europe. I mean, US clearly, we're, we're in a very extended cycle right now. Whereas in Europe, this is just a case of really trying to kickstart economic growth in many ways in terms of where Mario Draghi sits right now. So, look, I, I think, you know, central bankers are doing all they can. I think the, the onus also has to come on governments as well, right, from a fiscal stimulus perspective. I think they, they also have to look at things, whether it be things like infrastructure packages, et cetera, other ways of stimulating the economy. It can't just be central banks doing the heavy lifting. Thank you. Um, I guess one of the most uh, discussed uh, issues in, in global markets at the moment and one of the things that's in the mass media every day is, is this thing they call a trade war. How do trade disputes and whether that's US-China, whether you regard Brexit as essentially a trade dispute or any of the other myriad issues out there, how do they uh, impact on your thinking, Richard? Yeah, so there's a couple of points to make there. I guess from a wider equity perspective, right, I mean, the trade, on you know, Trade wars have introduced a large amount of uncertainty into the market. So I think from that perspective, you need to apply a, a discount rate, really, you know, because you know, we're sitting here right now, post the G20, yes, there's there's not been a further escalation, but I, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Um, and we know Trump is, is nothing if not unpredictable, right? So th- th- there's that impact. I think also from a company-specific impact, you know, there's certain sectors which clearly are bearing the brunt of this, right? So whether you look at the agricultural sector in the US, clearly there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of demand from farmers, etc. You've seen the auto companies, you know, clearly tariffs on steel, aluminium, etc. had a significant impact. For me, when you're analysing it, the key for me is pricing power at the end of the day, because you, you want to be trying to find companies that are able to, if they are impacted by tariffs, are able to pass that through to, to the end consumers. So pricing power is the key for me whenever we, you know, we're looking at sectors and, and, and how they're getting impacted. Thank you. 
James, as a as a as a growth investor, I guess uh, traditional market theory would be that uh, barriers to trade are a barrier to growth. How do you uh, how do you view that? Well, I think it's probably being overemphasized by the media uh, and and the bears in the stock market. I mean, history shows us that almost all of these events are are good buying opportunities, although it feels terrifying and and imprudent. Do we remember SARS, bird flu? these battles, wars, and terrorism, Mm -hmm. horrendous events for society, but they actually don't derail many long-term investment opportunities. You mentioned, James, in in, in, uh, your earlier remarks that uh, this is equity rally that we've had not just this year, but really for much of the past 10 years has been quite unloved. Uh, Part of the reason for that, I guess, is the the valuations. Uh, They already look in many markets high relative to history. One market uh, where, where valuations are not high relative to history where there's a lot of bad news and we, we know what the source of that bad news is, is the UK. How do you as a global equity investor who can go anywhere, how do you view investment opportunities in the UK at this time? Well, when the country voted for Brexit, I just didn't know how it would play out, except I knew it would be a multi-year cloud hanging over us. And until greater clarity emerges, why not use my global flexibility? If I've got great ideas in the US and in Europe, I should take them. So I reduced my UK exposure from about 25% of the fund to just 5% today. But, you know, having spent almost half my life in the UK, I know it doesn't sound it, but uh, it's true. You know, don't shortchange the adaptability, innovation, and grit of the British people. Some of the best companies in the world are here, run by smart, reliable, and honorable people. And we've got loyal friends all over the world that will back us. And that will never change. Thank you. Richard, in the, uh, in, as an income investor in the UK, there are uh, a lot of uh, stocks listed on the UK market that actually earn their, have their earnings overseas. Those stocks, of course, are boosted by sterling weakness. Um, has that presented an opportunity for you to, uh, to get some dividend yield into your fund? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd almost sort of take an alternative sort of viewpoint there that, you know, it, it's been quite easy, I guess, from global investors in many ways to, to sort of shun the UK and, and very understandably slow given given what's been going on with Brexit and the uncertainties there. I think certainly from an income investor viewpoint, again, when you look at companies in the UK and companies such as Shell, Rio Tinto, Unilever, Diageo, etc. I mean, the, the bulk of these these companies' earnings are coming from outside the UK. So, you know, even in a case of a hard Brexit and, you know, who knows what happens over the over the coming few months, I'd still say these companies have significant, you know, earnings power and earnings potential, right? They're generating significant cash flows, paying some very attractive dividend yields in some cases, you know, four or five percent upwards of that. So, again, from an in- income investor framework, I think the UK is presenting a very interesting opportunity set right now. Um, and again, valuation is now relatively attractive, given many investors are, are just are just shunning this, this, this uh, country right now. So... Absolutely, I'd, I'd be looking there right now from an income perspective. Thank you. Uh, James, there are a bunch of stocks, I'm thinking of Unilever and Diageo as, as two examples, uh, that have performed very well over the past decade. And, and those stocks are often called bond proxies because their valuations uh, tend to be quite sensitive to movements in bond yields. Uh, for most of the past decade, uh, some uh, investors have, have talked about how those stocks are overpriced because bond yields would inevitably have to rise. As we've already discussed, with interest rates maybe more likely to uh, fall than rise in developed markets at the moment, that implies that bond yields will remain relatively subdued. In that climate, do you regard those bond proxy stocks as potentially more interesting investments? Well, I think they, they do look pretty crowded. 
uh, investments. I mean, historically, these businesses were overlooked because of their pedestrian but predictable growth profile. But of course, you know, in a world of unreliable economic growth, suddenly this quality is prized. Evaluations are high, but that isn't a great predictor of future performance. So on balance, I think you should have exposure to these types of companies. Um, uh, much better than making a speculative investment in an unproven business. So I like the, the reliable and predictable earnings profile of these businesses too, but I'm trying to tackle it in a, in a different way. I, I want to find under-the-radar versions of these business models where there are fewer crowds. So I've invested in healthcare equipment and care homes and pest control, a company that makes seasoning spices and food ingredients – less well-known drinks companies, companies that collect your garbage, pawn shops, you know, all businesses with a weatherproof growth profile, but perhaps growing a bit more quickly and not so congested. Thank you. I don't know what it says about the world that pawn shops are a good investment. Um, Richard, Unilever and Diageo, I guess they're not the most high-yielding of stocks from an income investor's point of view, but relative, the yield relative to bonds is quite attractive. And I suppose many investors take the view that the yields will be re relatively secure uh, because Unilever make soap and, you know, even if there's a recession, people will still buy soap and Diageo make alcoholic drinks and uh, people will still want to drown their sorrows. So th as an income investor, how do you view those sorts of stocks? Yeah, I think James makes a very good point when talking about the kind of scarcity of growth. And, and clearly, you know, a lot of these companies have pretty visible earning streams backed by by decent free cash flow. So the multiple investors have been willing to pay for them, obviously, has been relatively high. I guess the point also to make, tying it back to kind of where we started really talking about central banks is that, you know, interest rates where they are right now, you know, clearly is, is also helped, right, valuations here as, as, mm -hmm. as you, you know, discount these cash, these future cash flow streams at a lower rate, right? So the multiple that you're you're willing to pay for that goes up as well. So look, I, I think for me that the key is, again, we're looking at the fundamentals of these companies more importantly. So again, referencing Unilever, the key for me is to make sure that, you know, underlying volume growth of these companies is quite strong. And again, if you look at a company like Unilever, particularly out of emerging markets, the volume picture has been quite strong there. They obviously got this 20% margin target that they're aiming to hit next year as well. So we're relatively comfortable from that from an investment perspective. And yes, it also pays a reasonably attractive dividend and a solid balance sheet as well. So, you know, I think Staples is a very interesting sector where, you know, there's certain stocks out there which we do think are quite vulnerable. Um, and also balance sheets, in some cases, have been extended quite a bit. And I referenced some of the US companies, the Kraft Heinzes, the General Mills of the world. And, you know, again, as purely, largely as a function of the interest rate environment, these companies have levered up their balance sheets quite significantly. So we think these companies could be vulnerable at some point, albeit they are still trading at, you know, 20 times, 25 times multiples. We think that end of the of the spectrum is is where you're going to see some some vulnerability. Equity investors around the world for, for many years have, have really had a... A dilemma with, with the US, which is that while the economic growth there looked to be quite entrenched, that was also quite an expensive market. Uh, all of the data that we see shows that uh, flows into UK, into US equity funds remain uh, quite, quite strong among investors. The US market hit uh, another all-time high not that long ago. Uh, it's also an economy that has been expanding for, I think it's now a record in, in history. Uh, James, how, how do you sort of square all those, all those moving parts um, as a global investor who can allocate to the US? We've had a very long period of expansion, and that's why everyone believes this rally is fake. And who wants to be the sucker to buy US equities at the end of the cycle? 
Every meeting I go to with companies, smart fund managers all ask the same thing. How will you do in a recession? Of course, the only frame of reference for most is the last recession in 2008. The presumption from the question and the answer is that the next recession will look like that last one. But of course, these businesses are different, and I think the next recession will look very different. What if it's a shallow recession? What if we just continue to fly along close to stall speed with occasional terrifying drops only to be met with surging rallies? I think we live in a world of unreliable economic growth. But through that fog, some amazing things are happening. Big changes in the way we shop and work and live and some truly outstanding, innovative, sustainable businesses that are making money from these, these trends. Most of them are in the US and they're such good businesses we shouldn't wait. Thank you. Uh, Richard, One of the a lot of the growth in the US uh, market has come from a relatively small number of technology stocks often called the, the fangs. Um, I'm not really sure how, how an income investor can, can look at the fangs, but what's happening in the rest of the market, particularly from, uh, from an income point of view, share buybacks have certainly been a feature. What's, what's your view of those as an income investor? Yeah, maybe just actually just addressing that initial point you made about, about FANG stocks. And yes, you're absolutely right. From an income investor perspective, it almost feels like, you know, you, you can't really participate in that. I'd almost have a, an, an angle that says actually that there are plenty of tech companies out there that are paying quite attractive yields and actually growing that income stream. So again, we, we look at companies such as Cisco. Mm-hmm. Systems in the U.S., Texas Instruments, great example, obviously reported yesterday, very, very solid set of numbers. So that income growth angle, I think, is is the real key that you can you can play in the U.S. Um, quite attractively, I'd say. So, you know, I, I think even technology is a good example that you know we, we actually have quite a significant footprint within our income portfolio in U.S. technology stocks just because of that income growth angle. So there's that element to it. To your question about about buybacks, you know, it, it is very interesting. You know. Clearly, again, as, as a function of kind of you know where interest rates are right now, we, we've certainly seen buybacks used a lot more as a as a tool for from companies. Again, we always look at the the whole capital allocation framework, right? So whenever we're evaluating the companies that that we meet and, and looking at in the, on our portfolios, we're we're, lo- we're looking at how they think about organic investment, in their own companies, M and A share buybacks, dividends. There's plenty of tools out there for companies to use. I'd be a little bit cautious given where we are right now on, you know, with companies using, you know, buybacks as, as a tool. I think, you know, you have to be careful from an income perspective that, you know, that companies are, are still returning that cash flow to you as, a, as an investor as well. So, you know, I, I do worry a little bit to some extent that buybacks are being used a little bit too much as a, as a way of kind of, you know, kind of keeping keeping earnings growth at, at reasonably high levels. And actually, are, are companies investing enough in their underlying businesses from a CapEx perspective to, to maintain, you know, sustainable growth? And at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for in companies, sustainable long-term growth. Thank you. Um, I guess investors, uh, who who look at emerging markets uh, have had a have had a rocky old uh, ride in the last few years. Uh, emerging markets tend to underperform when the market expects U.S. interest rates to rise. Uh, this this happens because many emerging market companies and countries have to borrow in dollars, and the expectation is that higher. U.S. interest rates pushes the value of the dollar up and therefore borrowing costs upwards. As we've mentioned, um, the uh, expectation now is that U.S. rates could could fall and certainly there are fewer people in the market talking about U.S. rate rises. That should be very positive for emerging markets, but trade disputes, recession generally, anything that disrupts or distorts the free movement of goods and capital is generally viewed as bad for 
emerging markets. So investors are presented with a real dilemma. James, uh, as a global equity investor, how, how do you look at emerging markets? They seem to have all this growth in the, in the long term that's quite structural, but at the same time have these short-term worries. It's a hard question to answer. And luckily, I don't have to make that bet directly. Many years ago, I held up my hands and said, I'm not smart enough or skilled enough to invest directly in emerging markets. There's too many variables in these fast-growing but nascent economies, too many local nuances, and not necessarily a level playing field. So I stick to stocks listed in developed markets, the US, Western Europe, and the UK. Now, of course, my investments have underlying exposure to emerging markets. They sell into or source from China, India, Russia, and Brazil. I have luxury goods companies, makeup and beauty companies, drinks companies, food ingredients, companies that sell ovens, boilers, heaters, and water purifiers into emerging markets. But they're the experts at navigating this, and and we benefit. Thank you. Richard, from a, from an income point of view, many emerging market market economies and companies, have, have they reached that stage yet where there are dividend opportunities out there for you? Yeah, I think they're starting to get, get quite interesting, I'd say. I mean, quite similar to James in terms of I, was, I sort of think about things from a portfolio perspective. Again, we, we have relatively little direct emerging market exposure, but actually if you look underlying within the, the kind of port- companies that we invest in across the portfolio, we have quite significant emerging market footprint and Unilever is a good example, right? Where you've got you know a decent decent chunk of revenues come come from EM that that are that are growing quite nicely. There's some very interesting aerospace companies, whether it be the likes of Airbus, United Technologies, etc. Um, clearly, we've seen significant passenger traffic growth coming out of China, principally aircraft demand there. So that there's a neat way you can play that from a from an income perspective as well. I think so. There's lots of things that are going on in emerging markets that I think are really are really interesting and really exciting to play from a global perspective. Um, and certainly, you know, some of the dividend yields we're seeing coming out of out of EM are, are looking quite attractive as well. So I expect that over time that kind of footprint, if you like, in the portfolio will will, will start to increase. Thank you. So so you both both take the view that the the best way to access uh, emerging markets at the moment is via developed market companies that that sell there. Yes, I'd say so at, at the moment. And again, you know, we we look at EM stocks as well. But in terms of the the portfolio as it is right now, we're we're seeing you know some pretty significant opportunities out of out of stocks listed in the US. In Europe as well. Thank you, James. Yeah, I think I think ultimately you you do have to stick to companies in areas where you have edge and expertise. Uh, it's a big world out there, and we have limited time. And it's important to to focus on you know companies that that do have the expertise to operate in those sorts of environments. And it's pretty hard to find a company that does not have exposure to emerging markets. Thank you both. Uh, it's been great to have you both on the podcast, and thank you for listening. And join us at the same time next week for another FT Advisor podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.